This is the Tudor's Dynasty Podcast. And now, Rebecca Larson. My guest today is author and historian Dr. Joanne Paul. She's an award-winning historian and senior lecturer in early modern history at the University of Sussex, as well as a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and an associate fellow of Higher Education Academy. Today, Joanne and I will discuss Sir Thomas More. I'm Rebecca Larson, host of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast and owner of TudorsDynasty.com. Telling the stories of those who lived centuries before us is what I enjoy doing most. Whether it be a show on one subject or an interview with an author or historian, I'll bring you the tales of 16th century England. Before I get started today, I need to take a minute to thank the folks who became new patrons since the last episode. Rebecca D., Kimberly F., Sandra Jean, Jill T., Grace, Sharon M., Barbara B., Mindy R., Jennifer C., and Vivian A. Thank you so much for your support. Your support and the support of all of my other patrons has meant the world to me. A full list of patrons can be found at TudorsDynastyPodcast.com. Thomas More, according to Erasmus, was a man for all seasons. In this episode, you'll learn about his upbringing, his education, his wives, and their children, as well as what happened to his head after his execution. So, let's get to it. Joanne, welcome to the show. Thank you. I appreciate you having me. I invited you here today to discuss Thomas More. Now, there have been quite a few books written on the subject. What made you decide to write about him? Actually, if you read the uh, the sort of the preface to my book, one of the first things I say, I think it's in the acknowledgments, was that I had never planned to write a book on Thomas More, um, partly because he's just so controversial. Uh, people have very, very strong, not just opinions, but, but feelings, deep-seated feelings about Thomas More one way or the other. Um, some people consider him to be uh, a saint, a venerable saint. They pray to him. To others, um, he's this zealous uh, persecutor of of Protestants, a very hateful figure. And I didn't want to wade into that particular uh, debate, but uh, someone got in touch, said, can you write about the thought uh, of Thomas More? Uh, Not his biography, not deciding whether he was a good person or a bad person, but looking at his works, of which there are many, and trying to figure out what he was all about sort of intellectually. And that that appealed to me very much. And so I did I did a book about that in particular. That being said, in, in the course of writing that book, I did notice um, that there hasn't actually been a biography, uh, a full sort of academic biography of Thomas More in, in about 20 years. Uh, and the ones that do exist... Uh, tend to take one of those two sides. Uh, so there is actually a lot more that, that needs to be done on, on Thomas More as well. What kind of childhood did Thomas have? Uh, he had a, a fairly uh, sort of low-key childhood. Um, he was born in Cheapside in London uh, to a sort of middling family. His father was a lawyer, a well-connected lawyer, um, but just a lawyer. Thomas More does not come from from noble stock, as he as he put it, um, but from honest stock. Cheapside in London now uh, has a sort of association, a Victorian association uh, with with sort of poverty. Um, the idea of, of cheap side, meaning you know a, a lack of a lack of wealth, um, is a very sort of modern conception. Cheap actually just meant marketplace, so it was a very bustling area. Uh, more would have been. Uh, well connected uh, to things like the Guildhall, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral was nearby as well. Uh, and he went to a very good grammar school um, called St. Anthony's, which was a walking distance from his home as well. Um, and very early on, it seems that he was a very bright and interested uh, young person. So how do you think his childhood then influenced him as an adult? Certainly the fact that he learned Latin um, and particularly uh, Ciceronian, so uh, the the Latin of Cicero at a very young age, uh, that he did have the advantages of uh, his father's connections. Uh, We know that Thomas More went on uh, to the household of Cardinal Morton, uh, who was a very influential figure in the early Tudor court. Um, Thomas More joined his household, would have been serving at the table of Cardinal Morton 
Martin would have overheard uh, political discussions, maybe even um, been privy to intrigues. Uh, he also appeared to have been at least aware of, if not involved in, the sort of the theatre and the drama that was presented at Lambeth Palace as well. Um, and that seems to have inspired him in various ways as well. One of the things that has always intrigued me about Thomas More is that he was married twice, which, of course, wasn't uncommon for the time. But absolutely. Yeah. His first his first wife was the mother of his children. And her name was. Do you go by Jane or do you go by Joanne? Uh, so, yeah, she's variously recorded as Jane, Joan, Joanna. Um, I like to think her name was Joanne <laughs> uh, for various reasons. Um, but yes, uh, often uh, Jane uh, is, is what's written down, but we're, we're not actually sure what she would have been called sort of day to day, which is unfortunate. She's an interesting figure because she is his first wife, uh, the mother of his four children, but we have so little about her. Uh, there's a story that's told that um, Moore had originally wanted to marry her elder sister, uh, or sorry, her younger younger sister, she was the elder, um, but that would have looked badly on her um, to have her younger sister married first. And so Moore agreed to marry uh, the elder, to marry her, Jane or Joan. This is probably apocryphal, um, probably designed to show Moore in, in uh, a better light, that he wasn't driven by passion, but was driven by sort of um, courtesy and charity. But it, it could also be true. That's basically the only thing we have about her, um, is a story that, that, that might actually be false. And she dies uh, quite young, because she's 10 years younger than Thomas More, and she dies in 1511 possibly as a result of, of childbirth, in which case that the child died as well, or um, perhaps one of the many diseases that was rampant in London at the time. Uh, but we have very, very little about her, unfortunately. One of the things um, when I was researching questions to ask you that I ran across is that it's sometimes reported that Thomas remarried within a month. Is there any truth to that? He did marry very quickly. Um, one of the things that is uh, used against him by uh, certain historians as the idea that he was in some way sex crazed um, and they they use that that phrase exactly because and and so they suggest that uh, his his remarriage his very quick remarriage uh, is is part of that but it's also worth remembering that he had four children under the age of I believe six at that point he had several jobs uh, and was financially stable but wasn't he didn't have the wealth at that point that he had later in life and so remarrying was essential to to his household to helping take care of his his children and and, and run the house uh, he marries a, a widow um, who has a child of her own uh, her first husband uh, had been a merchant in the same guild of which uh, Moore had connections and and was a freeman um, so it, it has a lot of the um, appearance of a sort of an almost business transaction that he would take her into his home along with the daughter, uh, also named Alice. Her name is Alice. Her daughter's name is Alice and take care of them. She would run the household and take care of the children. Uh, and they don't have any children of their own, which could be telling as well. What kind of father do you think Thomas More was? Thomas More was a very dedicated father. That can be certainly said. If it is the case that he, because he, he does flirt with the idea of, of entering a religious life um, and then chooses not to, chooses to marry instead, again, often uses evidence that he had some sort of uh, sex obsession. Um, I like to think of it instead is, is that he really felt called to, to be a father, to have a family. Um, and he's very dedicated to his family. Uh, a lot of the letters that we have are either to members of his family or about his family. Uh, he brings in tutors, has them all educated to a very high humanist standard of the time. Uh, his daughter especially uh, is known as a humanist scholar and a translator. He certainly, uh, from what we can tell, uh, kept a very sort of rigid household. Um, he wanted to bring them up in virtue uh, to do the right thing. But there's no evidence that he was um, uh, in any way sort of that he, that he had a heavy hand or anything like that and seems to uh, have been very loving to them as well. 
Switching gears a little bit here, let's move to Henry VIII or prior to him becoming king. When did Henry and Thomas's relationship or friendship begin? Uh, possibly when, when Henry was just a child, um, when he, he wasn't even heir to the throne. Um, it, it seems that uh, Thomas More, as a young scholar, um, becomes friends with uh, Erasmus, who is one of the sort of leading lights of the Northern Renaissance. Um, they become friends uh, at a fairly early stage in Thomas More's career, and the two of them journey uh, to meet the young Henry um, at uh, Eltham, I believe. Um, and that's when the two of them first meet. So I think I think Henry is he's very young, something like nine or ten at the time. Again, we, we never really know if these stories are true, but there's reason to believe that 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 might have taken place. So they they would have met uh, at a very young age. Uh, beyond that. Thomas More had done some work for the Crown on behalf of the Crown while he was still um, a, a London lawyer. Um, so in the sort of the 1510s, it's while on work for the Crown, for instance, um, that he writes Utopia, uh, and that's written into the first pages of Utopia that he's he's on a diplomatic mission for Henry VIII. But it's in in about 1517 that he really enters royal service um, and be, begins to work quite closely with Henry VIII to the point that within about sort of the first five years of his being there, most of, of, of the letters to Henry VIII actually go through Thomas More. And those wouldn't just be letters from abroad. We have to remember that, you know, the Tudors weren't texting. Um, so even from within the palace, if you want to communicate with somebody, you usually do so via a letter. And so a lot of those were going through Thomas More in sort of the early uh, 1520s. It's interesting when you described um, the meeting with Erasmus and Thomas mm -hmm. More. We have that painting that shows yes. the two of them meeting the Tudor children. Yes. I mean, that's a much later painting. <laughs> um, so unfortunately, it, it, it doesn't necessarily capture the time, but it, it captures the imagination and it, it shows what could have and, and it may have been a very formative moment um, for Henry. Henry had always considered himself to be a, a humanist monarch. Uh, he was interested in fostering the careers of people like Erasmus, like Thomas More. Uh, his father had uh, instituted um, something that we refer to as, as the new men. Uh, rather than uh, promoting nobles in his service, he wanted to promote uh, men of, of education, but not necessarily of noble birth. Um, and Henry VIII uh, takes this and, and continues this. So most of the names that we might associate of the men surrounding Henry VIII, Thomas More, Thomas Wolsey, Thomas Cromwell, not only are they all named Thomas, um, but they all come from sort of uh, lower to middling birth um, and, and really it's their, their education and their, their merit, uh, the fact that they're very good at what they do, that leads to their promotion. You had mentioned that Thomas started out as a lawyer. When exactly did he become a politician? That's a very interesting question. <laughs> We, we, we tend to say about 1517 when he enters the court, he's made the decision that he's going to live this sort of public life of, of, of service. Um, that being said, I, I, I don't necessarily subscribe to that because he had already been a London politician, if we want to use that term, um, for, for many years before that. Um, when, for instance, he, he travels on behalf of the crown, the, the opening of, of Utopia, um, he, he had already been under sheriff of, of London. Um, he was already an active uh, member of a guild. Uh, he, he had sort of made the choice to live a life of, of public service for many years before that. Um, what he decides, I think, around 1517 is um, that he's going to switch from London to, to the court. Um, and there's an interesting uh, exchange of letters between Erasmus and Moore at this time where he's trying to, to make this decision. Um, and it's very clear that 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 is a, a sort of a monumental decision, um, that there was a bit of animosity between London and London politics and, and the politics of the court and the crown, and that Moore could be seen as sort of 
uh, not quite a, a traitor, but but turning his back on on um, loyalty to London, in in deciding that he was going to give his service uh, to to Henry and to the court. Um, so that's that's a decision that he he carries a lot of weight for him, and and that he really has to think through. But he he had already been in public service uh, of various kinds uh, before that. You had mentioned all the Thomases earlier. <laughs> what kind so of many Thomases. there is so many of them, especially during that time too. Yeah. What kind of relationship did Moore have with Wolsey? Uh, that's an interesting one. I mean, it, it seems at first uh, to be a, a fairly close relationship. It's interesting. Um, there are many, many letters, especially in, in that sort of um, late 1510s, early 1520s period, when, when Moore is, is really a sort of intermediary. Uh, there are a number of letters between him and, and Woolsey, um, and, and uh, Moore tends to sign off, um, your loving beadsman. Um, which which means um, someone who will pray for someone else. Um, Bede uh, actually originally meant prayer or or, or to pray, um, and then became associated with rosary beads, and now now means the beads themselves. Um, but it, it, it means uh, a beadsman means somebody who will pray for someone else. And so there there seems to be at least um, in in writing a, a sense of affection between them. I think that. Uh, one of the, the surprising things and one of the things that we have to puzzle through when thinking about Thomas More is how quickly uh, More is, is happy to take Wolsey's place as Lord Chancellor um, to the to the point that he also um, reads out a speech, uh, presumably uh, written for him or at least guided by the king, um, essentially condemning Wolsey after his fall. Um, and, and that's often taken as the moment when um, Cromwell and, and Moore, the, the animosity between them begins that Moore is willing to do that. Um, and I think, I think that's, that, that is one of the interesting moments. Um, we might expect Moore to take a more sort of principled stand on that and, and to defend Woolsey. Um, but instead, he, he is willing to do that. And he does take on the job of Lord Chancellor after Woolsey falls. I'm glad that you brought up Cromwell, because I'm curious if Moore and Cromwell were always rivals. I, I don't think so. Um, it's it's often presented that way. I mean, I, I find the presentation of Moore and Cromwell in, in literature and in film and television to be really interesting, because um, they do seem to always be on this sort of teeter-totter seesaw that um, when, when Cromwell is presented um, well, more tends to be presented badly and vice versa. Um, if we compare something like Man for All Seasons with Wolf Hall, for instance, um, they, they tend to be uh, presented as sort of opposites of each other. If one's the protagonist, the other has to be the antagonist. And I just find that really interesting. They had probably known each other uh, for some time. Uh, they were born not that far apart. Cheapside is not that far from Putney. And although there tends to be the presentation of, of Moore coming from this very sort of upper class background and Cromwell from this very lower class background, um, I think that's a little bit exaggerated. Um, neither are noble. Uh, Moore has perhaps more connections uh, than Cromwell to begin with. Um, but they would have understood each other, I think, in a lot of ways. And their initial meetings probably would have come about um, in Parliament. Uh, 1523, I believe it is, uh, Moore is, is Speaker of the House. Um, Cromwell is there as an MP. Um, and actually, at that point, it seems that their interests were very much uh, aligned um, Moore is is frequently uh, a pacifist. Um, he condemns war, for instance, in in Utopia, and Cromwell may have even given a speech arguing against going to war with France. So their interests appear to be aligned at that point. It does seem to be about the time of of um, Henry's great matter, uh, the uh, divorce proceedings um, against Catherine of Aragon, um, the introduction of, of reformist religion, Lutheranism, um, and the fall of Wolsey. Somewhere in all of that, their interests diverge, and um, they diverge dramatically and with, with great consequence, as we know. One of the things that confused me was I had found an interview that you had done a while ago, and I don't know if you remember uh -oh. this or not, <laughs> but 
But you said that as a politician, that Thomas would lie when he needed to. So that statement to me just really struck home with the fact that he just refused to sign the act of supremacy. Why wouldn't he have lied and gone against his conscience on that, but would on other things? That's a very good question. Um, and I think uh, one that Thomas More himself and the people around him puzzled over quite a bit. Um, absolutely, I think uh, More did uh, understand that public service involved a certain amount of compromise, compromise on the truth at times. Um, we see him thinking through that in Utopia itself. There, There's a, a whole dialogue on being a counselor and the fact that um, sometimes one has to sort of go with the times. Um, one cannot always present uh, uncompromised truth because nobody uh, will listen to that. Um, and in order to retain a certain position um, where you can make things better, um, you have to sometimes, well, just make things as little bad as you can. Um, to quote from Utopia, you can't always make things the way that they 100% ought to be. Um, and so something like, for instance, that speech about Woolsey um, may not have reflected Moore's own views, and yet he gave it anyway. So as you ask, why does then he uh, sort of take a very principled stand on uh, this question. Um, so he uh, eventually agrees uh, that he is happy to recognize Anne Boleyn um, as Queen of England and her child Elizabeth as heir, but what he won't agree to is the preamble uh, to, to the oath, um, which recognizes Henry as uh, head of the church in England. Um, that's the, uh, the issue. Um, over which he's he's willing um, to to take a stand um, and uh, eventually um, to face execution. Thomas More um, is very interested in all of his writings in um, a couple of central questions, central issues. Um, one of which is the idea of of unity and community as opposed to uh, what he talks about is pride, what we might think of now as individualism, the idea uh, that an individual might know better, uh, might have a sort of higher interest than uh, the, the, the all, the community. Um, and we see this evidenced in uh, his uh, writing, for instance, on politics, the interest of the public, of the all, must come above the interest of the individual. Um, same goes for his writings um, on, on education and sort of um, the, the community of ideas um, that uh, it's, it's important that education uh, be accessible to everyone. Um, he writes against those who would sort of uh, cloud their learning um, and their writing in jargon. Um, he's he's interested in in learning having a sort of a common use um, that it being dedicated to the public as opposed to the prideful interests of the scholar. And finally, we we see it very clearly as well uh, in his writing about the church. Um, and so his. Uh, his major criticism, uh, he has many, many criticisms, many volumes of criticisms, uh, uh, millions of words um, of, of Lutheranism. But the, the, the sort of the core of it, I, I think, is um, he sees Luther and those who follow him as, as prideful, that they think they know better than the whole community of the church. And for more, the church is a community that is not just geographically expansive, but temporally as well. So the church includes every believer who has ever lived. And so a single individual saying, oh, I know better than that um, is, is for more um, what's really tearing the church apart. And so, sorry, I'm coming around to your question again. Uh, so, so for more, that is the central issue um, for, for, for everything he sees wrong from the Commonwealth to the church and beyond. And so for that reason, Henry deciding that he's going to break with the church, that he knows better, that, that the, the counselors around him know better, um, that they're going to tear the church apart 
based on their own pride. Um, that for more, he, he can't get behind. Um, he can't agree to that one because it, it, it would break everything apart for him. Did Moore have any idea that by not signing the Act of Supremacy that he'd be executed? I think uh, he, he seems to have acknowledged that as a possibility. Um, perhaps not at, at the very, very beginning, um, but he seems to have been aware um, towards the end that, that this is what was being threatened. Um, he was aware of others having been executed, particularly uh, the Carthusian monks, um, a community with which he had lived before his marriage, um, some 30 years before uh, he, he's imprisoned. Um, by the time he's executed, he has been imprisoned for a long time. Um, and in the letters um, which he, he writes uh, to his family at the time, um, there does seem to be an awareness that martyrdom for this cause uh, is a possibility. So I, I doubt that it, it came as a significant surprise to him uh, where he ended up. Um, certainly by his trial, uh, <laughs> he, he knew what was happening um, and still, uh, to use a very modern phrase, stuck to his guns. Do we have any idea what his final days or final hours look like? Um, I mean, in, in prison, uh, there's there's sort of a, a transition. Uh, at first, uh, he's writing a lot, so we have many of of his um, prison writings, um, entire books, in fact. Um, so he seems to have been very active. Um, he he had visitors, people coming and talking to him. Following the trial, though, he has so at his trial, he he does finally sort of speak out. Um, against Henry's break with Rome and his assumption of uh, the headship of the Church of England. And, and that at that point, um, Moore is very clear on, on his position, it appears anyway, from the records that we have. So his, his final, what is it, I think six days between the trial and his execution, um, he probably wouldn't have been given any of, of the benefits that he'd previously had. Um, there do seem to be some letters, um, and certainly we think he certainly would have spent it uh, in, in prayer um, and in preparation. Uh, a lot of the writings that we do have from, from earlier in his um, imprisonment are about um, things like uh, the Passion of, of Christ and, and um, dealing with um, difficult situations, trials uh, of various kinds. Um, so he had thought a lot about preparing uh, for for a moment like that. Do you remember what his final words were before he was executed? Oh, yes. So there is some debate about those final words. Um, so uh, famously, it's reported that his final words are, uh, I die the king's good servant, but God's first. So this idea of prioritizing his religious commitments over temporal ones. Um, however, uh Probably what he uh, said was, and God's first, which maybe we think that that isn't such a big difference, um, but it does seem to speak more to the idea that those two things ought to go together. Um, that yes, religious commitments come first, but that doesn't mean that you can't serve the king in, in line with that. Um, that. That report of those final words is, is probably accurate. Um, it is contemporaneous to the execution, um, so that may well have been uh, his, his final uh, public statement. Um, it's very common, of course, uh, for uh, those condemned to execution to give speeches, usually in support of the crown, a sort of last attempt to, to show that whatever their crime may have been, they still uh, support the crown and, and encourage others to do so. There's usually encouragement of prayers for the king and his counselors, uh, usually in order to protect the family. Uh, those who are left behind. And so Thomas More would have given something uh, similar to that. After that, um, he would have forgiven the executioner, given um, a payment uh, and and uh, prayed. Uh, so his, his final words were probably quietly to himself as he prepared for the axe to fall. Is he the one, and maybe this was made up too, that mentioned something about his beard? 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. So uh, this uh, might be more apocryphal, um, uh, but it's it's suggested suggested that he he went to the scaffolds cracking jokes, um, which is in line with some of the things that we we know about his character. And there's two jokes that are recorded, um, and and I won't get them word for word, and and they're 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 funnier in, in modern language anyway. Um, but uh, the first is as he's going up to the scaffold. There's there's many steps, um, and of course he has spent. Uh, many, many months uh, in uh, prison, hasn't been able to, to exercise as much. Um, he's, he's an older man at this point, may have been suffering from various ailments as well. And so um, on his way uh, up the stairs, he sort of slips or, or needs some assistance um, on his way up. And to the person who helps him, he says, oh, thank you so much. Uh, but on the way down, I, I'll, I'll manage for myself. Um, which of course is, is is quite funny, um, and then the other is that he jokes um, to the executioner um, that when cutting off his head, uh, mind the beard. Um, he's very proud of his beard, uh, and so we have we have record of these jokes largely because um, others uh, condemned him for this sort of light nature um, that in in such a solemn moment he he was cracking jokes and so he was he was a bit of a fool but I, I think others tell this story uh, as a way of showing that that death um, didn't didn't mean that much to him and, and Christians aren't meant to put that much emphasis on death death is is meant to be a sort of a welcome uh, a freeing from from the imprisonment of, of life. Uh, and so it can be read, I think, in either way. Um, but yeah, I enjoy that he was he was up there, you know, cracking jokes and <laughs> making fun of the situation. I love that because I feel like that would be something I would have done. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you've got you've to lighten the mood, right? right exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so then after he his head is removed, they parboiled his head? Yeah, so... Uh, I, I, I enjoy the story of his head. Uh, it's fascinating. <laughs> um, so he usually um, heads, of course, are put up um, on pikes on on London Bridge um, as a sign uh, to to others to, to you know to get in line. Um, and in order to ensure that the heads sort of stay up there and and last a bit, um, yeah, they, they they often sort of parboiled them or or did something to to, to preserve them a bit. So so that's uh, probably what happened before it went up on 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 the the, the spike um, for all to see. Uh, but it didn't stay up there very long. Um, his daughter uh, made a deal uh, with with one of sort of the the soldiers or officers um, and managed to get it down. And kept it. There's, there's a great, uh, again, sort of, I think it's Victorian painting of her sort of receiving and cradling the head, which is meant to be all very romantic, um, but it would have been extremely gooey <laughs> and uh, very, very unpleasant. Um, but she keeps it. She keeps the head. Um, she goes on to sort of... Um, pickle and, and cook it herself in various ways to, in order to preserve it. Uh, she she keeps it throughout her life and then um, is buried holding it, which is a choice. Um, and then she's eventually exhumed with the head. Uh, all of it is moved to Canterbury, which is a very long way from where they were buried in Chelsea. Um, and I just hope they didn't do it in high summer or anything like that, because the smells would have been fantastic. Um, and so they move move um, her and the head to Canterbury, where it, it now uh, rests. Um, I had the privilege of, of um, visiting and giving a talk at St. Dunstan's um, in Canterbury, where uh, the head uh, has has been buried. They, they had a look at it, I think, in... I think it was in 78, so the anniversary of, of his birth. Um and, and took a picture. It, it is much uh, uh, decayed. Uh, it had been uh, for for a while. It was it was a sort of a spectacle. People could go and and pay their their penny or whatever and, and have a look at it. So it hasn't always been treated uh, in the best possible way. But uh, it is under there, and there's there, there's a lovely uh, window, um, stained glass of of more, and and a lovely. Uh, sort of um, stone memorial uh, at St. Dunstan's uh, if you ever have a chance to go and look at it. 
the whole story is, <laughs> is just so morbid. And when yeah. I think of it, like, why did she carry it around with her? Why didn't she just bury it somewhere? Uh, it's, um, I mean, it's interesting. I think it's all part of the fact um, that there was a major campaign um, largely led by the family after his death um, to have him canonized and, and made a saint. Um, so a lot of the writings that we have uh, about him sort of from, from shortly after his death. Um, so Margaret's husband, for instance, writes a biography. Various members of the family continue, continue to write biographies um, that are very um, – uh, saintly, uh, very uh, hagiographical, in an attempt, I think, to to convince uh, the Vatican to declare him a saint. Um, that takes about 500 years. <laughs> they uh, they they don't manage it um, until 1935, um, so 400 years after his his death. But I think this attempt to sort of keep a relic, um, a, a saint's relic of him, um, and and to to preserve it and, and perhaps even, in a sense, pray to it or worship it in the way that saints relics were at the time uh, is very in line with that effort. I want to go back just a little bit and touch base briefly on Thomas's history of Richard III, which was published sometime between 1513 and 1518. Uh, uh, sorry, actually, it was never published in his lifetime. Oh, uh, yes. <laughs> so the one of the fascinating things about this history is that it's unfinished and unpublished in his lifetime. Um, so it's written uh, between uh, probably 1513 and 1518, uh, but he abandons it. Uh, he never finishes it. And it's only published in the 1550s in a collection of his works um, that are published under the Catholic Mary I, again, in this attempt to sort of revive his reputation and perhaps um, to have him canonized. Um, so, yeah, it's one of the great mysteries is why he doesn't finish it. Well, we know that Richard III dies in 1485 at the Battle of Bosworth. Uh, Thomas wasn't very old at that time, so how was he able to tell this story of Richard? Really interesting, his his uh, his connections with that story and, and with the politics of the time. Uh, I'd mentioned that as a boy, uh, he had served uh, Cardinal Morton, um, previously uh, Bishop of Ely, and uh, he's a major character in uh this history of, of Richard III, um, where the, the story leaves off very sort of abruptly when Moore stops, stops writing, uh, Morton had sort of was, was starting to save the day. And, and so Morton is set up very much as the sort of um, the savior of, of the English Commonwealth in these books. And it's probably through Morton um, and uh various sort of members of, of his household that, that Moore gets the information. Um, the, the text is really interesting in that it, it alludes to Moore's sources at various points. Uh, at times, he, he sort of says, uh, it's it said this, but also some people say it happened this way, or I have one source who saw it and swears that it, it, this is how it happened. Um, but, you know, others have believed this. Um, so there's a sort of conscious weighing up of the sources um, as, as he's writing, though I think it's only in one case that he names his source. Um, it's also his father seems to have been a source in this. Um, and, and it's possible. Uh, people have suggested that it's, it's really Morton who writes it. I don't think that's right, but it's, it's possible that Moore is working from notes from Morton. Uh, so he, he does seem to have sort of, if not first, very, very close secondhand knowledge of, of what happened at the time. Doesn't mean that it's a historically rigor, rigorous text um, by today's standards. Um, he, history at, at that point was, was all about sort of exemplarity. Um, and so um, showing examples of virtuous people and, and vicious people, um, showing certain lessons, moral lessons that were truer than the truth of, of, of fact and fiction. Uh, and so it has to be read, I think, in, in that light. Um, but he was very interested in, in witnesses and, and what they saw. While researching Thomas More's life, was there anything that surprised you? I think there was a lot. That, that surprised me. As, as I said, there are these moments of 
apparent contradiction. Um, there are these moments of, of deep sort of um, humanity, uh, the, the, the sense of, of real feeling. Um, I think, though, what, what surprised me the most is, is how little we're able to, to say that we know, um, how much the sources tend to come from, uh, from reports after his death, from attempts to paint his life one way or another. There's a real sort of war over his reputation after his death. I've already mentioned his family is trying to present him as a saint, and, and so they're telling stories that are meant to, to fit with saints' lives, um, to show him in, in certain lights. Um, on the other side, of course, though, um, England, um, barring the reign of, of Mary I, is, is becoming a Protestant country. Um, more uh, as Lord Chancellor um, uh, persecutes Protestants. Um, as I've already said, he, he argues um, strongly against Lutheranism, Protestantism. Um, and so uh, those people who are, are trying to, to promote a, a Protestant agenda were writing essentially uh, propaganda uh, for that um, are very keen to disparage him. So Fox's Book of Martyrs, for instance, um, which becomes uh, highly successful. It's, it's, it's in almost every parish church across England um, under Elizabeth. Um, he, he's one of the main villains. And there are stories told about him um, torturing Protestants in, in his own home and his uh, tying them to, to trees in his in his backyard and, and whipping them. Um, and so each of these stories obviously have their own aims and, and agendas. Um, and it's really difficult as a historian to try to sort out, OK, but what really happened and who who is this really? Um, and even up until the, the 20th, 21st century, we're still reading Thomas More in one of these two lights. Um, and a lot of work still needs to be done to try to go back to the sources, uh, to things like his networks, his connections, the people around him, and try to build a story that's that's free from either of these agendas. You brought up Protestants, and I wasn't going to ask you this question, but now that you brought it up. Let, oh, I, said, I said the word. <laughs> Did Thomas More or Queen Mary I burn more Protestants? Oh, Thomas More um, was involved with, with the burning of very few Protestants, actually. Um, so uh, so definitely Mary takes takes that particular honor. <laughs> um, uh, he, uh, so he becomes Lord Chancellor in 29, um, 1529. Uh, and I think the first Protestant is burned, um, in 1530. I would have to check that. Um, but there are only six, I believe, who are executed during his chancellorship. He's only Lord Chancellor from 29 to 32. Um, and I think it's only three of those uh, in London um, so that he would have been in directly involved with. Um, and in terms of his involvement, um, as Lord Chancellor, it is uh, his job to see to the soul of the realm. Um, and so he is in charge of... Um, prosecuting heretics, which, which Protestants would have been seen at the time. Um, and, and that had a long tradition in England. Uh, 1401, the Act on the Burning of Heretics is, is um, published. So, and, and dozens of, of heretics had been burned um, in the early years of Henry VIII's reign. Um, heretics were burned in the reign of Henry VII. So that part isn't new. Um, it's just uh, that Lutherans now sort of qualify for that as well. Um, so, so yeah, very, very few. It's interesting. I, too, talk to people all the time and say, oh, well, you know, he had hundreds executed, um, which simply cannot be true. <laughs> um, it's, it's, he is involved. He does say that um, burning unrepentant heretics is the right thing to do, um, but he, he himself is, is responsible for very little of that. Thank you for clearing the air on that. <laughs> sure. um, in three words, how would you describe Thomas More? Oh, uh, that's that's very difficult. Um, I would uh, sort of reflective. Um, he's he's very uh, thoughtful. He he thinks through things. He uh, fortunately a lot of his thinking through he he wrote down. So we have a lot of his reflections. 
Um, I think uh, he is largely consistent. There's a sense in which, although there are uh, things that we can point to that are perhaps contradictions that we wouldn't expect, actually, I think we can explain many of those. Um, and one of the things that's a benefit to me in a study of, of his work and his thought is I don't actually think that he, there are sort of radical changes in what he believes. I think he adjusts what he believes for the times, um, but his central core tenets remain the same. Um, and I think he's complex. Uh, I'll, I'll end with that one. Um, one of my favorite things to say is that the heroes and villains of fiction uh, look nothing like the complex uh, historical figures and human beings of the past. Um, he is a complicated person for all his his, his consistencies, um, and and he is a person. We're all we're all pretty complicated. Um, we all have moments where we do things that even we go, "Why did I do that?" Um, and I think I think he's he's like that as well. Um, there are there are layers to him, um, and. I, I think if we try to put him in a box of hero or villain, um, we don't do credit um, to him or to the study of history. I think that was more than three words. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I gave you three. I just explained each one. I love it. Well, now we get to the part where I ask you the same questions that I ask every guest who's on the oh. show. And they're a little different than the subject that we just spoke about, but it's still okay. tutor related. Sure. Who is your favorite wife of Henry VIII and why? Ooh, um, I, whew, that's a tough one. Um, I would probably say Catherine Parr. Um, I, I'm really interested in her as, as a, a, a figure, as an intellectual figure. Um, she was, uh, extremely well-educated, very interested in, in fostering other, uh, others learning. Um, I think, uh, she learning about her and her sort of her network and her, her friends. I, I think she attracted other, uh, women, uh, who, who were interested in, in learning and the new learning. Um, and she, of all of them, I think she's the one I'd, I'd be most interested in sort of sharing a glass of wine with and, and chatting. Um, so I, I'll go with her. I love her too. I think she's fantastic. I believe that was Nicola Tallis's pick too. Uh, yeah, good. Yeah, it's a good choice. What is the most recent Tudor film, series, or maybe book that you've experienced? Oh, um, the, the most recent of them. Um, uh, thinking about sort of fiction as opposed to, to, to nonfiction. Um, I did read, is that the most recent one I read? Yeah, I, I did read uh, the first one of the Shard Lake series. I'm forgetting the author's name now, but they're sort of... C.J. Sansom. Yes, that's the one. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, that's, I think, probably the last fiction I encountered. Um uh, about sort of uh, the dissolution of the, the monasteries, but it's it's a sort of it's a mystery. Um, yeah, I enjoyed that. It's a bit 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 of light Tudor reading. Um, it's perhaps not as complex as some others, but you need that sometimes as well. <laughs> I, it's funny that you mentioned that because I only read that one probably about six months ago, and I just yeah. I just started on the second one. Have you? Yeah, I, I finished the first one. Went okay. That's enough from now for now. And I've I've been reading some other things, um, but yeah, I, I might. I, I think I have the second one. I might pick it up at at some point. Um, but of course, I've been reading many many other um, nonfiction books related to the Tudors, um, and uh, including Nicola Tallis's latest on on Margaret Beaufort, which is excellent. Yes, and sometimes after reading all that nonfiction, you just need to give your brain a break. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and I'm always looking for recommendations of, of lighter reading um, that is still enjoyable and engrossing. Well, you'll have to make sure you follow me on Facebook and Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'll keep <laughs> listening to these podcasts if I know that that's going to be the question that comes up. If I had a time machine that would allow you to go back and witness a piece of history, when and where would you choose? Uh, I probably would head to about 1516. 
Um, and you can land me in London, but it's fairly easy to travel at that point. I get to see Thomas More um, writing Utopia, thinking through those ideas, as well as making the decision about going to the court. Uh, I'd be there for the, the birth in the early months of young Mary Tudor. Um, which I think would be very interesting as well. And I'd probably then travel down um, through France and into Italy, uh, have a quick chat and then maybe a, a bite with Machiavelli as well. What might listeners be surprised to learn about you? Oh, I don't know. Um, I don't know questions about myself. Um, oh, I originally, um, when I was a child, wanted to be an Egyptologist. Um, I still know the uh, hieroglyphic alphabet, um, and I'm very interested in ancient Egypt. Um, but uh, I'm I'm very pale, and so I decided the history of England was probably better than the history of North Africa um, for my complexion. <laughs> Joanne, can you let everybody know where and how they can find you and maybe purchase your work? Absolutely. So um, I'm on uh, Twitter at Joanne underscore Paul underscore. I'm also on Instagram. I think it's uh, Dr. Joanne Paul, but I'm, I'm sure you can find it. Um, I've got a website as well, joannepaul.com. Um, my book on Thomas More is available um, at, at many online retailers. It is just called Thomas More. Um, and I have a book coming out in the next month um, called Council and Command in Early English, in Early Modern English Thought. I didn't even get the title right, um, with, which is with Cambridge. Um, and so that's available, available for pre-order as well. Joanne, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. I really, I really enjoyed it. And that concludes this episode of the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. On the next episode, I'll speak with award-winning author Wendy J. Dunn, and we'll discuss Catherine of Aragon and so much more. If you don't want to miss out on future episodes, be sure to subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Need more info? You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Search at Tudor's Dynasty. Intro and outro music called Folk Round by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Creative Commons license via filmmusic.io. Thanks for checking out the Tudor's Dynasty podcast. Read more. Read more on the blog at TudorsDynasty.com. Follow Tudor's Dynasty on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to Tudor's Dynasty on iTunes. Thanks for listening.